Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I pulled rank today. Um, there was a discussion that lasted all of about three seconds over who was going to record this one. And I went, no, I'm having it. Um, why did I decide to pull rank, Alex? I just find it funny that you did pull rank because it meant that you sort of effectively rugby tackled Lockie out of the way and won, uh, which would never happen in real life. Uh, you, pulled rank. Yeah, you pulled rank because uh, our guest today, I think you and him have got a bit of a mutual boy crush going on. I mean, he wants you for your Wellington brain and I don't know, maybe you just like his big shiny head. <laughs> it is, of course, Peter Hart, who's an idiot, but... Um, when it comes to real life and like common sense and stuff like that. But when it comes to world war one, he's quite bright actually. And actually he does a bit of the wrong war as well. And now he's going backwards into the 19th century, but that's not why we're here today. We're here today because today Zach is the anniversary of the Gallipoli landings. And um, we're going to give Pete a chance to rant about it, but we're not going to talk about the actual landings. Uh, if you would like to learn about the landings, the latest great war group magazine is themed the Gallipoli landings. Uh, but we're here today. Uh, the title of the podcast is Genesis of Failure. We're going to give PT a chance to rant. Hello, PT. Hello. It's a delight to be here with such lovely people. That's really not. And to talk it. about the great war as we, as we historians call it. <laughs> is he always this charming? No. Only when he wants. Even <laughs> see, I always blame this one on your granddad, Alex. Um, so I might end up being educated and expose myself as a bit of a cretin. Um, uh, now, granddad's going to take a bit of a beating today, but he's not the only one, is he, Petey? But he we, certainly is not the only we one. We set the scene for people. Um, the end of nineteen fourteen. Britain is engaged to the limit of her military capacity on the Western Front, isn't she? And and beyond. Uh, why and how? Well, it's it's perfectly simple. Uh, Britain was a naval power and uh, didn't have a proper army, which is often the case. Uh, 
so we had uh, four divisions ready to go, another two ready to go within a, a couple of weeks. But we, we, we were not a military power. Uh, the Navy, whilst that was big, uh, because the German fleet, could, the high seas fleet, could pick its moment to attack, uh, that meant that we had to be ready at worst case against their best case. So although we had a, a naval superiority, it was narrow, much narrower than the raw figures show. So we we were uh, at the limits of our capacity. I think that's a, 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 we, we couldn't really deliver much more than we were already doing. Uh, the, the new armies were being raised, Kitchener's army. The territorials were starting to come to the Western Front by the end of fourteen. But it's a slow process. In many ways, it takes two years before the British are, are, are on land involved in the war proper. Is that a hang-up from kind of colonial era, army going to be a police force to keep the colonies in check sort of thing? Is that the kind of the legacy? It is. And it's also a legacy of the fact that uh, British politicians are only willing to pay for one major service. And the Navy is expensive. And campaigns like that, was it, uh, we want eight and we won't wait for dreadnoughts, were excruciatingly expensive. Uh, and it is a political decision as well. It's, you know, the army doesn't say, oh, we're going to be this size. It, it's set by the budgets, in a sense, that are allowed. And our country was not willing to do it. Come November, though, Turkey enters the war, right? And if I remember this correctly, both sides were kind of hoping that they might manage to get Turkey to intervene on their side. Probably completely wrong. And I've exposed myself as an idiot there. But what kind of impact... What kind of impact does it have? I used to have a friend who, whenever she said not at all, she meant yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm used to the abuse on this show. Don't worry. I bet you are. Um, no, well, uh, it's, it's very interesting the way Turkey comes into the war because uh, Britain sort of wanted her to come in on but made no real efforts. Um, uh, the, 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 there was no diplomatic overtures and we took, we stole their battleships. Uh, they had two battleships being, uh, don't ask me their names, no one in their right mind would remember them, uh, being manufactured in British uh, shipbuilding yards. They were almost ready and, and we took them without asking. Uh, we took them because, as I said, the, the naval margins are narrower than they look. Uh, but this then exposes us. If Russia, if uh, if uh, Turkey comes into the war, the Ottoman Empire, I always call it Turkey and Turks, so I just better warn you, it's correctly Ottomans, but bugger that. Um, uh, the, 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 if, the, if they come into the war, all the things that people put in favour of Gallipoli are thrown into doubt by Churchill, the First Lord of the Admiralty's decision to take their battleships, which really annoys the Turks, really does annoy them. And the Germans uh, capitalised on it by sending the Goeben uh, and the Breslau, who were in, floating about in the Mediterranean, to through the Dardanelles, and they were then signed up to the Turkish Navy in a sort of... Uh, and this sort of, from then on, there's only one side they're going to come in on. And uh, it's duly manoeuvred uh, between the German war, uh, Turkish war minister Enver Pasha and uh, Suchez commanding the Goban and then the Turkish fleet that uh, the Goban and other Turkish units bombard Russian forts. However, before we declare war, after this, but before we formally declare war, Churchill orders units of our fleet to bombard the, egg, the entrance to the Dardanelles, thus warning everybody of what's likely to happen which is another church. So before the Dardanelles even starts, 
Churchill's made what could be considered two really big mistakes. One, to steal their battleships and allow the Goeben and Breslau to escape from the Mediterranean. And, and two, or three, depending on how you look at it, uh, to bombard the outer forts, thus warning that we have an interest in what's going on there. So it's, uh, it's not just the genesis of the campaign. It, it, go, it reaches back, as you rightly imply in your questions. Well, brilliant <laughs> so I remember that one of the boats is called the Sultan Osman and that I don't know how to pronounce the other one because it's a Turkish word. Raz, Razi, something. or something like that. Anyway, um, before we embark on how we ended up facing Turkey at the Dardanelles, what does Turkey entering the war, what's the biggest threat for Britain? Because it's not the Dardanelles, is it? Why are we scared well, of Turkey? Well, there's two main threats. There's one geopolitical threat and that is that uh, turkey is a uh, the ottoman empire is a muslim country and half the british empire is muslim including the jewel in the crown india uh which is, is, is partly muslim uh, it's partly hindu as well as you know uh, that can lead to trouble um and uh, so there's that there's there's egypt there's all sorts of uh, of our colonies that have muslims living there and uh, the Turks declare a holy war. So there is this very real fear about what might happen. So that's a sort of geopolitical thing. And that does impact on, on Kitchener's views about failure and the Gallipoli later on in the campaign. But in some ways, more immediate were the Turks can directly threaten the Suez Canal, the route to India, and, uh, and that they can do if they can manage to cross a 90-mile desert. Um, which is um, doubtful. Um, they also threaten the oil supplies. There's no uh, British oil supplies are, are, are based around Mesopotamia or Persia, actually, but the route through is through Abadan and Mesopotamia. And the Turks could threaten that route. Uh, it is interesting that before Gallipoli had started, both these threats had been overcome. The, Turkey, the Turks made an attack in February and it had been smashed. In fact, yeah. it was an incredible it's achievement. important to say that, isn't it? That actually this isn't, when we do pick a fight with them, it's not because we have no choice, because they've already tried the Suez Canal and it was a bit sad, their attempt, wasn't it? Well, it was very brave and they, they've got across the canal and they 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 uh, they dragged pontoons right across the 90 miles of the desert. They, they behaved with incredible fortitude. They got across, they wouldn't surrender. They fought their very good defensive troops, the Turks. Uh, and that should have been a bit of a, key assigned to people but it wasn't um and they'd also we'd launched the mesopotamia campaign and had already secured the oil by december 1914 it was absolutely we then go on for a mad mesopotamian campaign and and could have lost everything but that's it was secured in december 1914 so it the two main threats had mm. been dealt with the, the turks couldn't really do anything to us so I think what the point that we're trying to get across here is that there's not really any need for an offensive at this point against the Turks. But Zach, take us on. Um, I just have a question off the back of all of this. Why are people looking elsewhere if it's kind of been done and dusted in these other theatres? Because you've got uh, a whacking great front in the form of the Western Front. There's quite obviously a gridlock there. Have they just kind of given up on the Western Front and they're sort of looking to other places as a quick solution to a, a problem that can't really be solved at that moment in time? Uh, 
Well, it is. It's uh, the, the, the fight against Germany on the Western Front is the main front. There is another main front, which is of equal importance, although not as the war turned out, on the Eastern Front. And it's good to remember that. It proves not to be the most important front because, as we know, the Russians collapsed in, collapsed in 17. So clearly that wasn't the decisive front. The decisive front was and would be the Western Front. Um, and everything else... But it was tough. The German army was incredibly uh, well-organised. Uh, they made mistakes. Their cavalry was dreadful. They made mistakes. But they, they fought hard. And it was clearly going to be a long and painful war. Now, who is it who always looks for easy, quick solutions? Is it A, generals, or B, politicians? And the answer to this is politicians. And it's the political classes the chattering classes who start to worry about the futility of the western front um, the generals know that if they abandon france the germans will occupy the coastline and they'll control europe for the foreseeable future and they will be well poised to launch an assault across the channel at some point in the future this is uh, zach your your specialities in napoleonic wars you will recognize all these statements as being eternal British foreign policy interests uh, until we all started supporting the Russians um, until they attack Ukraine. But, you know, <laughs> that's our current political leadership. But these are the, the eternal things. But the Easterners, as they became known, the Westerners who believe in the proper thing, uh, the logistic uh, logistically, it makes sense to fight on the Western Front, which is close by. It's not far from London. Uh, but they, they look to the East and, and they make a, a group of claims which are ludicrous. The first one is it would knock Turkey out of the war. This is the idea that Turkey was propping one of the allies, the central powers, propping up Germany. Uh, they claim it would influence the wavering Balkan states into joining the Allies and Italy. Well, it could be said it did with Italy. Uh, whether you think the Balkans can work together on anything is up to you. Uh, release pressure from Russia. At this point, in December 1914, the Russians have run into trouble in the Caucasus. Uh, and although this doesn't last long, they actually request help as a distraction and to, to sort of try and weaken Turkey. Uh, in actual fact, General Winter and uh, the Turks' incompetence means that the Russians actually win that campaign and there's no need for it whatsoever. But my favourite realised, release pressure from Russia, Russia, that's fine, but open a sea route for the South Russian ports in the Black Sea, which would allow the export of munitions to feed the, Ru the Russian guns. This is in 1915, when we can't even feed our own guns on the Western Front. It's ludicrous. And the obverse is to allow the import of gain for, uh, grain from Russia. Well, that sounds feasible because we can't feed ourselves, never could. But uh, hang on a minute. What's one of the causes of the Russian Revolution? Big, the, the Russian railway system couldn't move food and troops. So a lot of the big cities started to starve. There is no way of getting the grain. What about the submarines on the route? Have we got destroyers for escorting all these ships to go through the Mediterranean. Who's that in the Mediterranean? Oh, the Austrians. Are they on our side? No. Have they got a navy? Yes. Do you see what I mean? There's all these ludicrous, ludicrous things. And, and if, the, if, Ger if, if the, the central powers were going to be defeated, if Germany, that's the real one, is going to be defeated, it has to be on the Western Front. But the visionaries, Churchill, Lloyd George, 
and most, if not all, in fact all, because they all voted for it, all the cabinet eventually sign off on, a, on an assault on Turkey. I do yeah. rabbit on, so just shut me up if I... <laughs> No, it's all good. You've just led us perfectly into our next question, uh, which is, so we've talked about Churchill a bit. So for those of uh, World War II people listening, this is a skinnier, younger version of Churchill with slightly more hair, um, but just as much belligerence. Um, he is a major pa- uh, major character in this. You've mentioned the cabinet. Lloyd George is another key one. He's an Easterner, isn't he? Who else have we got? We've got Fisher as well, haven't we? Who later claims that he always thought this was a terrible idea and goes loopy. Well, Fisher, Fisher is the first sea lord, i.e. the professional head of the Navy, and he bears the imprint of the last person to sit on him. So uh, if, if he's been talking to Jellicoe, who's the, uh, the commander of the Grand Fleet, he will, I mean, Jellicoe's banging on about needing all his battlecruisers, about banging on about destroyers, which they desperately need. Uh, he, he sort of he said, we have to keep the, our fleet at home. But if he talks to Churchill... Churchill is brilliant. There's no doubt he's a brilliant politician. What's Fisher's weakness? His age. So when does he hold meetings with Fisher? He keeps him up till two or three in the morning. Fisher can't cope with it. Fisher. And so Fisher vacillates between one view and the other. There's no clear guidance from the professional uh, professionals of that. And the problem is that the uh, the chief of Imperial General Staff, who is, oh God, I can't remember, Murray, one of the Murrays, there's about eight Murrays, I can't remember which one it is, is also pretty useless. Uh, but people like Haig, Sir John French, they're going, that do it, stick to the Western Front. Uh, but uh, the politicians do not listen to their, uh, their uh, military advisors, which is a bit unfortunate, really. We're going to move on to discuss Gallipoli in a second, but this isn't the only sort of slightly stupid idea that's floating about, is it? So tell us about some of the others. Well, they're t- yes. I mean, they're just barking mad. Uh, uh, I, you'd think they'd... I, I, well, I, the, 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 the Churchill was particularly keen on taking Borkham and Stilt Islands, which he wanted to establish a destroyer base on as a forward base to harass the thing. This would have led to a slaughter of what whoever was in, put in charge of it. Even more lunatic, him and Fisher, both favoured landings on the North Baltic German coast. I, I don't know whether you can imagine. In fact, they did something. If you can imagine what would happen to them. What would have happened to them if they had tried that against Napoleon in 1918? Uh, what's it? And, and you could just see they'd be isolated and, uh, and uh, destroyed. It's a mad scheme. Uh, they, uh, they even planned landings on the Belgian and Dutch coasts. Uh, it's interesting that our perception of neutrality can be as dodgy as the German. Well, Nikolai and I are going to do a whole thing at the conference in October about how there's no such thing as neutrality in the First World War. Well, there's certainly we, we I mean, these plans didn't go anywhere because everybody yeah. just said you're mad. You know? <laughs> and rightly so. Rightly so. So there's all these schemes, but the essence of all of them is they're looking for an easier way. They're looking for a way where the Navy can play more of a part. They're looking for a way to evade the uh, the, the terrible um, sort of stalemate, as they saw it, and the suffering that they saw lay ahead over the next few years on the Western Front. My view is that that suffering was unavoidable once you get into the Great War. Uh, if you're fighting the Germans, you have to kill about two million of them before they'll give in. Uh, and the British Army are going to have to play their part. 
It's a terrible, nasty business. Just away from the Baltic as well, um, I, because you know I never, ever t- uh, pass up a chance to slag off Lloyd George, uh, also known as Satan Spawn and the Little Welsh Demon. Um, his plan, I love his plan. His plan is, let's just take everyone from the Western Front and dump them in the Adriatic and they'll start a new front there and win the war in like a week. I think they'd drown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I just, I, I can't, what is he even, well, he's he's not qualified. But all these, all, I, do you know, it's no worse than the other ones. I think the worst one is landing on the North German coast. And, and that one is quite else. hilarious, yeah. I mean, that that is suicide. Let's uh, but pick they're, where they're all, all the, their massive naval bases are and start a fight there. I think, uh, you see, why does the Dardanelles plan win out? And it, it, the thing is, although I think the Dardanelles plan is stupid and seriously at fault, it's probably the best of that list of plans we've just been through. It, 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 it does have some hopes, although in my view, very little hope of success. It's just not clinically insane as most of the other ones are. So Churchill manages to get it through because he promises... Or basically, he says it's all going to be naval, doesn't he? That's how he manages to do it. He sells the idea. That's it. And they're going to uh, bombard and conquer the... uh, Bombard and take the uh, Gallipoli Peninsula. I can't remember the exact phrase. But it's a phrase that a fleet clearly can't do, uh, by the way. They can bombard it, but they can't take it. Uh, He bullies the local admiral, which is Admiral Carden, uh, who is in a psychologically weakened state already. He bullies him into trying... Uh, they start a campaign in February and it works through in stages until uh, March 18th of 1915. Now, this is uh, this is the big day for me. This is the only day when there was any real chance of a Dardanelles campaign succeeding. I'd say they had about a 5% chance of success, which is higher than everything else that they did. Um, they, they basically launch an Anglo-French fleet. Uh, it's a classic Gallipoli plan because we seem to be taking the lead. Our best ships go in the first line. The French ships go in the second line. Our worst ships in the third. Worst ships in the third line. And it that sounds fair. But the, the scheme is we bombard until the forts seem to be possibly slowing down their rate of fire. Then the French should pass through and engage them closely at close range. This, of course, means that the French get an absolute torrent of fire because the Turks basically stop firing every so often just only when there's a really good target and they lose the bouvet in uh, i think it's two and a half minutes with uh, there's a lot of gallic shrugging going on in our direction at gallipoli from the french isn't there yeah there is the french only there really to watch us uh they don't trust us they may be our allies but uh they've been our enemies right up i mean the fashoda crisis was only a few years before when we near we considered vaguely going to war with them the French are not our eternal allies. They were our allies then. And we were getting uh, and, closer uh, and closer to the Middle East, aren't we? Which is where we clash massively in ambition-wise. So, I mean, rightly yeah. so. They are hanging around like a fart in a lift watching everything we do in that region. They are. They want Syria uh, in particular, yeah. which is why they're not keen on us landing in Syria, for instance, which is one of the proposals. Uh, they, there's proposals that the Greeks will, will, will send an army of 50,000 to join with us to take the whole thing. Uh, the, <laughs> The, the, the Greek the Greek government proposed well Venezuela's Venezuela's I'm not sure that's how you pronounce his name I think that's a town anyway Venezuelos <laughs> isn't it I, I don't know that's him that's it he, he's but, the prime minister yeah. he proposed it but the king who's pro-German oh, stamps on it 
And the Russians say, oh, no, you don't. We're not having the Greeks take, take Constantinople, thank you, Istanbul, of course. So this is all going off. Um, it's just it's just a mess, a whole mess, the whole thing. And eventually what emerges is the attack on the 18th. Uh, we lose a third of the fleet. Uh, I think three ships are sunk. can't remember. Uh, we lose six ships anyway. They're put out of action one way or another, which is a, a, a third of the 18. We achieve nothing. And one of the – I like one – quote that says you know you have to break you break eggs to to make an omelet but uh, if you break all the eggs and you still haven't made the omelet it's not, it's not <laughs> you're not doing too well are you i mean and well, that's what it is it, and people keep saying churchillian apologists and they are legion because of his career as a, a great second world war leader whether you think he was great in the second world wars down to you uh, he is popularly considered to be great um uh, and uh and so his apologists, like Robert Roach, those all there, they all will say, oh, the, the Turks are running out of ammunition. If only they'd tried again. Except the Turks weren't running out of ammunition. They had enough. They had enough. And we only had two-thirds of ships. I'll tell you who was running out of ammunition. We were. Because our logistical chain goes all the way back to Portsmouth, etc., which is a long way away. And the, the the admiral who by then de Roebuck had taken over from John de Roebuck had taken over from poor old Carden who'd gone home loopy uh, well ill not well uh, and um, he just says no we can't do it Admiral Key uh, Commander Keys uh, Roger Keys who was an idiot of the highest order uh, forever from then for the rest of his career said if only they'd attacked next day they'd have got through and, and, and the world of the war would have been over and Constantinople would have surrendered as soon as the British arrived uh, because they're cowards them Turks yeah it's just all rubbish yeah speaking of the Turks you mentioned the 18th of March there they rightly remember that as a day of glory for them in terms of I mean because we are invading them um or trying to invade them um, yeah. and they're defending their homeland and the 18th of March, uh, they worship that date, don't they? They do. And if you go in the, through the straits, it's got big things on the side of the hillsides. One thing about the Turks is just remember that they started it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they bombarded the Russians first. They go on a bit, all this invaded our homeland and we're completely innocent, just sat there doing nothing and the British and French invaded. They'd invaded, they'd, they bombarded uh, Russia. But, uh, but yes. Yeah, so, well, in August when we get there. Uh, well, no, I think he, I think Berlin, York must know as well. The uh, the Turks aren't innocent, but then the British and French aren't innocent either. We have our eyes on breaking up the Turkish Empire. So whatever the excuse, we're, we've got a darkest side. We want Mesopotamia. The the uh, the French want Syria. Uh, the Russians want uh, Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, there's everybody's got motives. So. Um, there's reasons why the Turks, driven to desperation, uh, attack, sort of grab on the German alliance and attack the Russians. Uh, so I'm not too down on them. Has nobody thought about the fact that, you know, hang on, lads, we bombarded some of the outer forts a little while back, kind of leaving a calling card, and they might have had a think about how this might go down in future and done something about their defence. Has nobody thought that through from an intelligence well, perspective yeah i'm sure some of the admirals did i doubt the politicians did uh they they intended to do it in stages and then t- tried to rush all the stages together on the 18th the problem is naval gunnery is not suited to uh, attacking land forts it's flat flat trajectory and forts tend to be up a hill or behind 
they had lots and lots of howitzers behind a hill, so you can't get them at, at, at all. Uh, you have to actually hit the magazine. Strangely enough, on the 5th or 6th of November, when they'd done the first bombardment, they'd actually blown up a fort. They'd blown up uh, uh, Bar, But that was just luck. They never blew anything else up as long as they tried. So it's just one of those things. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's just it's just awful, really. <laughs> so, unfortunately, dumbass politicians are in charge of this. Um if you're a mover and shaker in the war cabinet, what do your options look like now? You failed to do this using the Navy like you planned to. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, this is where... Kitchener starts to take an edge more blame. I, I'm quite a I'm quite an admirer of Kitchener, although he he doesn't have the greatest first world war. Uh, At but, this uh, point, though, he has been saying this is stupid, and you're not having troops for this. However, he is he is known the Sardar from Egypt, uh, uh, India. He doesn't want to lose publicly to a Muslim power because he feels the subjugated. And remember, they're not all cheery. They don't all want British control. This idea that Britain is a benevolent, uh, lovely country that everybody loves in, in India. I'm being Gary now. <laughs> <laughs> and Egypt and Burma and all the other places that we've conquered and subjugated. And I think subjugated is the right word. Um, they, they, they're looking for a, a chance often to revolt or to make their feelings felt. That doesn't mean the Indian Army wasn't loyal, by the way. I'm not saying that. And uh, it's a very important force. But... Kitchener fears the reaction. He fears a mutiny. He fears all sorts of things. And again, I just want to remind you, time passes. Halfway between the, your Napoleonic period and, and the, the Great War is the Indian mutiny in, uh, in the, the 1850s, uh, which, which was still part of popular memory. People were still alive who'd been there uh, and, and had experienced it. And so there was this great fear of losing face and there's one other thing as well, which uh, which I, I'm tempted to ask you as the question, but I mean, I'm supposed to be answering them. But there's one other thing that British planners 
in planning a land campaign had always in front of them, and that is that we are the British and the Turks are Johnny Turks and they're, they're useless. They'll run away if we can get... We might suffer casualties getting ashore, but they won't stand up to the British yeah. guts and bulldog spread. I mean, as soon as you get ashore with our trusty bayonets, they'll <laughs> run because they don't like it up them. It is. It's and, that useless, fuzzy-wuzzy, racist, uh, brown troops are inferior to white troops bullshit, isn't it? Unless they're trained by the British and actually Indian or Gurkha, in which case, of course, they become British. <laughs> exactly. but, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, the, the sheer stupidity of the idea that Turkish troops are useless. Yeah, they'd had a bad time in the uh, in the in the Balkan Wars, but it was only two years before they'd learned a lot. A lot of their troops had gained experience. Uh, what they were, and they even in the Korean War, fifty years later, they had the reputation. They were superb defensive troops. They would not give up. That they, they they were good. All the crap that we shoot fifteen rounds a minute, and every other country can only shoot one. It, it's just <laughs> bollocks. They're, they're, they're well trained. They're good at musketry. In fact, at, at Gallipoli, once we got ashore, we found they they could put a bullet through the uh, sniper's plate, through the hole in the sniper's plate from a hundred yards. The, the Turks, they're not useless. They're well trained infantry. And funnily enough, do you know what? A lot of the troops we landed were not well-trained infantry. And uh, shall I just run through the troops at Kitchener and, and Mamas? Yes, tell, so tell us, plan-wise, what is the plan then and who are they sending? Well, let's have a, a, a force generation again, because things don't change. When you're generating a force in the Napoleonic time, do you, A, send any old troops that are just around, or do you try and send troops that are suited to the job? And, and the answer is usually you try and suit the job, the troops to the job. Well, 29th Division, oh, it sounds good. It's a regular division. But is it? It's, it, it's scraped up from around the empire. Half the mad VD, that's a callous. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but they were they were from all around the empire. They've been back. They're not trained as a division. They've not fought as a division. They've not done anything as a division. They didn't have their own uh, artillery. They 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 were not a division. The Anzacs, the Anzac Corps, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, Anzac for short. Uh, good, great material, but no real training, no experience. The Royal Navy Division, my personal favourite, were vastly incompetent at the start. They'd already had the Antwerp disaster. They were good, good material, but they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they had no artillery, so they are not a division. Royal Naval, Royal Naval bunch of infantry would have been a better description. The 42nd Division, which come in the early stages, they're a TA unit. They'd had a lot of training in Egypt, but they were, it was not adequate. And all of them were woefully inadequate in artillery munitions supply. There were, however, two divisions in the early days that were well organised. Can you can you think who they are, Alex? Oh. Is it the French, Peterkins? It is the French who sent two divisions, one immediately and one following up. Uh, and the thing about them was they had plenty of artillery, unlike all of the British divisions, and plenty of ammunition for munitions for said uh, guns, which we didn't. And, and the reason for this is the French, who had been fighting various people for some time, Zach, you may not be aware of this from your Napoleonic studies. There's a clue in the word Napoleon. They'd been, they were quite used to running a war and they had ammunition and guns because they knew they'd need them. And uh, they're well-trained troops. So, uh, But it's a disaster in the making. Uh, 
the naval campaign's a failure. They've got, according to Kitchener and other politicians, they cannot lose face, so they're going to have to go in. Uh, it, 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 it's, they're going to have to go in, and who's the mug that's going to lead them? So who's the poor schmuck who's lumbered with all of this and has got to make it happen? Because it's not Churchill, is it? He's, he's out of the picture <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, you said the Navy. Navy didn't work. You can shut up. So who's left to deal with it? Well, the only person is, 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 is the army, as, as usual, the divisions I've mentioned. And they're under the command of General Sir Ian Hamilton, uh, who is a very, very distinguished soldier. And now uh, the Germans reckoned he was the most experienced general in the world. Uh, just, just, just. I've got a few things. I'm not pretending that I remember this, so I've, I'm looking at a list. Yeah. Uh, he was born in 1853, so he was very old at 61, which is six years younger than me. He'd been in the Second <laughs> Afghan War, 1878 to 80. He'd been in the uh, the First Boer War, uh, 1880 to 81, where at Majuba Hill he'd been recommended for the VC, but was too junior and wasn't given it. He'd been in the Nile, uh, the Nile operations of 1884-5. He'd been at the Shitrell expedition. <laughs> I have to be careful how I say that. The <laughs> Shitrell expedition uh, of uh, 1895. Don't ask me where it is either because I've forgotten. He'd been in the Terrar expedition, which I never did know where that was. That was 1887 to 8. Uh, he'd been in the... Uh, the Boer War proper, 1899-1902, where he'd had a brilliant war. Unlike most British generals, he'd had a very, very good war, working with, uh, with, with Kitchener, which were the foundation of their relationship. He'd been the official observer of the Russo-Japanese. This is a really, really experienced man. He was hoping to get command of the BEF, but he hadn't been given. He'd been left in command of troops in England, uh, and now he was given Gallipoli. He was the poor schmuck, as, as Alex would describe him, who was uh, saddled with trying to make something impossible work. Uh, I do not blame him for failure. I do blame him for several other things. Yeah, that's the thing. I think I have tempered my opinion from what a knob to he is a knob, but he was a knob on a hiding to nothing. I, I'm not sure I'm going to go with the knob. I think he's just a bloke given an impossible job. And one of the things about the British generals of the time, him, the commander of 29th Division and later 8th Corps, uh, Hunter Weston, Aylmer Hunter Weston, people like this have a can-do mentality. And the trouble with a can-do mentality is if, it, if you can't do it, and clearly can't do it, then it just leads to needless casualties, needless slaughter. But if you're getting ordered by politicians back at home, you are in a cleft stick. You are, they're saying, go on then, go on. So you try, you lose more men, you try again. Oh God, uh, we send us more, you're, you're, you're buggered, to use a highly technical army term. Um, yeah, I'm not sure anybody forced Hunter Bunter to light that mine up at the most stupid time possible on the 1st of July on the Somme. Uh, there's a story about that. If you read my book, you'd see that there is a reason why it happened. And it, it, Have it you was... written a book about the Somme? I didn't even know. You know I use it to kill spiders because it's massive. Um, I do. But... I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared of spiders. I, I, get, I get Polly to kill spiders. <laughs> I use your book. I throw that book at them. Uh, and it's only the paperback and it still kills them. But um, obviously the Gallipoli landings, as I say, if, if your interest is Pete, the new Great War Group magazine um, is going to go into this in, in great depth. And Pete's written a brilliant article about the French for that. That'll be a whole other podcast. But just briefly breaking it down, 
the plan itself. So strategically, we have issues with them making this landing, but the tactical planning is shit, isn't it? I think, uh, Ham- I mean, often books will say Hamilton's plan was brilliant. It wasn't. What he does is he lands troops at Anzac, Anzac Cove, which is halfway up the peninsula. That's one separate operation. He then lands, he has five, I think, landings, uh, uh, X, Y, W, oh, Christ knows how many landings at, uh, at uh, Helles. He has a French landing to cover the arses of the Helles landing um, at uh, uh, the other side of the Straits. Uh, which is conducted by the French. He has a French diversion at Bazooka Bay. He has a British diversion by the Royal Naval Division uh, in, in, in uh, to, towards the Blair Straits. It's just he has here, there, every bloody where. What he does is that they're all in, they're all interlinked operations, but they're all separate. Even at Hellas, where they they just round uh, the, the peninsula uh, with uh, V and W, X and Y. And then S, they're all, there are five. They are too far apart to support each other. There's no communication because communications at the time weren't up to it. Wireless communications could have a delay of an hour and a half by the time it's got from where it's sent to to where it's going uh, through various bits and bobs. Um, The the, the Turks, you know you have something just-in-time ordering by supermarkets. The Turks are just about able to cope with what's happening. But the other thing is, there's a gross overestimate of British for of Turkish forces. So they've only got one company facing the Anzacs before a regiment, a couple of regiments arrive, and and the British at Helles, the whole of those five landings facing the whole basically the 29th Division is only opposed by one Turkish battalion. That's just a thousand men plus another platoon from the other. But never mind that. Um, they 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 they. they, they and this means that when they have when when the Turks launch some sort of minor because they like German control in, in German theories, so they always counterattack. Um, if they launch a, a platoon attack, we think there's a thousand, two thousand men coming, and we get scaredy and stop doing what we're doing and often retreat. But there are only a few men, and it hampers them almost as much as the actual uh, Turkish heroes, a third twenty-six regiment uh, 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 there, and. Do you know, it, these may have been the first landings made in the face of modern weapons, which I think they are, I think, if you think about it. Um, but the, the British, and that includes the Anzacs, the Anzacs are part of the British Army, could hardly have done worse, or the Turks much better on the 25th of April, because we fail pretty well everywhere. At V Beach, we capture about 10 feet of ground. W Beach, we make a minor incursion. Uh, y Beach, we make a small incursion and have our asses kicked out. Uh, X Beach, we don't really do anything. S Beach, we don't really do anything. At Anzac, we manage to get inland, but not as far as we were meant to get. And then the Turks counterattacks forces. But everywhere, it's just a tale of, well, the Turks have done brilliantly and we're held. And you're going to be in. The Gallipoli campaign is going to be one of stalemate, pain and suffering, a bit like the Western Front, really. It's not an easy option, and it never was going to be. Terrible. Am I right in thinking that we never actually reached day one objectives over the entirety of the Gallipoli no. campaign? The day, one, uh, day one objective was a, a, a thing called uh, Achibaba, which was a hill about six miles in. Uh, it is a dominant tactical feature. That was meant to be captured on the first day. The second day, the real tactical ob- 
objective of Kilid Bahir. That's the massive plateau ridge that dominates the actual narrows. Well, we never even mention that again. And often Gallipoli accounts by Hamilton and Churchill apologists will erase that because it shows how we never got anywhere near it. That was meant to be taken on day two. Day three, the fleet would pass through the straits and everyone would have uh, beer and skills and everyone would be happy. And then they'd go to Constantinople and the cowardly Turks would just surrender. That was, But in actual fact, the whole campaign of eight months, we never get further than about 400 yards in front of Krithia, which is a poxy little village. Um, I'll, it, 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 it's basically, if you look at it, um, we, 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 we're trying to get Constantinople, Istanbul, aren't we? Can't do that. Uh, to, to, to get that, we have to get through the straits. But we can't get through the straits unless we capture Kilid Bahir. But we can't capture Kilid Bahir. First, we have to capture Achibaba. But we can't capture Achibaba. So first, we have to capture this poxy village. It's called Al-Sitapina. No disrespect to it. It's where people live and work and, and have their lives. But as it's a tactical object... lots of ice cream as well when we're there. Yeah, I love ice cream. Uh, <laughs> but as a tactical objective, it it's, doesn't mean it. it's just a few... Yeah, but we can't capture even Krithia. We have three battles of Krithia, and then we start calling it by date. It's always a shit. We're not the Italians who go nineteenth battle of the Isonzo. We we have the sense to change it to date. Before we can't capture embarrassing, right? Yeah. So we can't after the third battle. We can't capture Krithia either. So we start trying to cap- capture the vineyard, which is a vineyard just in front of it. We can't capture all that either, and it all ends up usually being trying to capture. Trench H12, it's nearly always H12, which is just a poxy, useless trench. And that's mission creep. That's, that's, you don't know what you're doing. That's, it's absolutely useless. And if you look at the Gallipoli plans, there's, there's no well-defined goals. There's no real plan. There's under-trained troops. There's a lack of proper maps or intelligence, although they were there. It's just they didn't use them properly. Inadequate artillery support. No, the wrong uniforms and equipment for the climate. Terrible supply arrangements. Uh, the, the enemy were grossly underestimated. Communications were all over the place. Some of the local uh, local British commanders were useless. There's the, the, the ludicrous overconfidence despite that. And then inevitable disaster, which culminates at Gallipoli in in uh, nineteen uh, in in uh, December and January of the end of the year, uh, humiliating retreat. And they're all that's just pretty well inevitable from the first day, as far as I can see. Uh, the real winners are the Turks, uh, and uh, the real losers are pretty well everybody who was there, because it was not a good place to go. Disease, death killing misery what are the bigger consequences i mean you're sort of tapping into it there about how this was i'm gonna use a, a technical term that we do love here on history hack this was shithousery um from from start to finish yes uh, alex has trained me well as you can tell um but w- what happens you know certainly to some of these people who were making these decisions in the longer term well, it ends Hamilton's career. It ends Churchill's career. If the, we had a country that could recognise him, you know, he was finished for years. But he, he is so competent it, and so powerful a politician. Within a year or so, he's wormed his way back in. Hamilton's career is over. 
Uh, he, do you know he only dies in about 1948? It's weird to think of him being... Like, that's only seven years before I was born, sort of thing. Perhaps some of his reincarnated spirit. Ooh. Not quite his love child, though. No, no, not quite. <laughs> you do have a similar um, Ted, to be fair. Uh, Aylmer Hunter Weston, who was a very bright but uh, unpleasant uh, and uh, uh, individual capable of uh, horrendous stupidity, he uh, he uh, he goes to the Western Front where he's a corps commander and he's used mainly after messing up on the Somme a bit. He's mainly used for training. Hey, grates him as a training and a steady hand for holding the line, but not for doing any big offensives. So, but but the real, I mean, it's it it's what I like to look at is if we hadn't gone to Gallipoli, did, did it make a difference the whole campaign? I think that's one of the things Alex wanted me to think about. And, and the answer to me is not really. And Does one interesting thing is... I always thought it makes us go into Salonika because we, would we not have just said to the French, this is stupid, had they not backed us over this idiocy? I think possibly, but I don't know. Um, that We're very wavery, uh, but we, don't, we haven't learnt any lessons from Gallipoli, nor of the French. We get sucked into the campaign. Serbia was our allies, and that's why we go into uh, uh, Salonika. But one thing I like to reflect on is partly because of where I come from in the country. Uh, did it affect the Western Front? Well, the answer to that is two part. One, no, because the forces engaged were either untrained and wouldn't have been deployed for years anyway, uh, another year at least. Or two, um, they, they weren't there. They, they'd have been in the Middle East anyway. So, um, But one thing is the 29th Division would have been there. Uh, because they should have been on the Western Front. That's where they were meant to be going before Kitchener changed his mind 87 times. Um, and I also think, I'm, I'm from the Northeast. I don't sound like it, but uh, my family are. And some of my great uncles were in the 50th Division. And they were deployed during a German gas attack on the, on the 22nd of April. Is it, Alex, you know better than me. 22nd of April, the, the big German gas attack at Ypres, first Second Battle of Ypres. And the, the the untrained 50th, relatively untrained 50th Division are forced to be deployed because there's nobody else. Yeah. I think that should have been the 29th Division. But did it affect the war? Not really. Mm. It's stupid and it causes a lot of loss of lives. It gives the Turks chance to kill lots and lots of British people that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But did it affect the actual course of the war? I don't think it did, to be honest. Um, it was a failure. If it had succeeded, would it have affected the war well i don't think it could have and that is not hindsight look at the correspondence from people like jellico haig other senior people who are saying what are they doing it, it's not all hindsight in 1906 they looked at the plans to do it to do a gallipoli campaign and take the dardanelles and, and they decided it was nigh on impossible it hadn't changed that is not hindsight that is pre-sight is that a word? It is now. One thing we haven't mentioned, P.E., um, just because we're on uh, inclusive history now and otherwise we'll get screamed at by woke people, India are there too, aren't they? Yes, very, very, very much, definitely. And, and of course, there are, there are people from all our Newfoundland. The Indians play a magnificent part in the campaign. There's a brigade, a 29th Brigade of Indian troops. Fantastic performance. The Zion Mule Corps. Yeah. who were recruited, uh, they're there. Um, they, there's a huge, and let's not forget it, Irish contingent there. 
mm-hmm. a tenth Irish division are there. But a lot of the the landings at V Beach were, were conducted by Irish troops. The Monsters. Uh, there's a lot of Scots. Fifty second Lowland Division are there. People suffer from all. Uh, and and then and then of course the French. The French army is uh, sort of made up a bit like our colonial forces. So they have. Uh, metropolitan troops from France, but then they have the French Foreign Legion you know, from everywhere. They're hilarious in many ways, um, and uh, but they also have uh, a large number of uh, of troops from North Africa. So it, this is not just uh, uh, the British suffering. This is many of the Allies, uh, and many of them. The French fight hard and well. It's my opinion, by the way, that the French probably killed more Turks than the rest of us put together. Because why? Because they uh, they had proper artillery and their bombardments were lethal, uh, and we relied in our attacks on that French artillery often. So there you go, Gallipoli failure, destined always to be a failure as well. Yes, in my view, Peter, this has been well peerless, frankly. Um, I'm I'm going to resist the temptation to suck up too badly, but thank oh, you. Get a room, you two, really. um thank you for coming on Uh, we could sit here and publicize all of your works but to be honest we'd need another half hour to do it um people just go google peter hart actually no go to the history hack bookstore and then go buy all of his books do that and And stay tuned on history hack because we'll give you details of how you can come and meet peter at his fabulous book launch in november because peter you're working on a book you you are doing one about the wrong war um but also as well you've got um military humor which you've done with gary yeah it's uh, it's called laugh 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 or cry and it's about how soldiers cope in action uh, about how well they've got a choice to can either laugh or cry and we we've, we've looked at the laughing side it's a weird book because a lot of it's very macabre very dark humor uh, and I think it brings to light the, the stoicism of the British soldier. Uh, it is mainly British, this one, because it, it, that's what the sources were. And, yeah, we're launching it on 11th of November, somewhere in London. Uh, venue's a bit in the air at the moment, and we'll be publicising We've got to find it. somewhere where you haven't annoyed people, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, OK. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, it's basically it's myself and Gary Bain of Pete and Gary's Military History that, uh, that have done it. Uh, Gary's equal partner in writing the book and uh, and of course in the podcasts which uh, are not rivals to History Hack because we're only weekly we, we, we're, well we're weekly as in we're not very strong and we're also weekly as we're once a week and also we're all once a week's well. enough for any man yeah. I just thought carry on just stall out and carry on doctor <laughs> Peter, Once a week's enough for any man. <laughs> uh, and when you do go to the History Act bookstore, um, this man has written a very fat book. It's a spider killer on Gallipoli. Um, and also more recently, a book specifically about the evacuations. And he has also just done for us very kindly uh, an introduction for the Great War Group series of introductions on Gallipoli. So there's plenty this man has written about this campaign. If you want to uh, see and hear him ranting more about what a colossal waste of time it was, um, Pete, thanks very much. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop 
forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.